Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Will M&A pick up in 2024? Will this year mark the return of IPOs? Listen to Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets to get fresh insights on the trends and market forces impacting deal flow across sectors and find out how companies and investors are preparing for potential surge in deal activity and what signals to watch for this year. Listen and subscribe to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to OK Computer. We have a great episode for you today. First, Guy Adami and I sit down with the abdominal Kara Swisher to discuss her new book, Burn Book, A Tech Love Story. And if you want a copy of her book, we're going to send one to you for free. To get it, follow OK Computer in the podcast store and leave us a review. Screenshot it and send it to contactatriskreversal.com. We're going to send a free book to the first 100 folks who do that. And later, Jesse Chassie of RBC Capital Markets joins me to talk about the state of the IPO market and whether the drought is almost over. So stick around for those conversations. Kara Swisher, she is back. Guy, this is the fifth time that she has been on a Risk Stop Reversal it. Media podcast. You yeah, are listening yeah. to OK Computer. She is Kara Swisher. She's the host of On. She's the host of Pivot. And she just wrote The Burn Book. We have it right here. I just read it. It's a tech love story, isn't it, Kara? Yes, that's what it is. It's a love gone wrong. It's as, it's, as many loves do, right? You know, you have to have well, some I mean, drama. Listen, I, it's like I read the Taylor this book. Swift of tech books. So. <laughs> well, she's riding that all the way to being a billionaire. So maybe that's what you've got in store for you here a little uh -huh. bit. But but Guy and I, listen, I really love this book. You know, Guy and I have like an interesting seat because, you know, we've had a front row seat for a lot of things that you detail in this book, but from a different perspective in a way. And so- I'd love to hear yours. I'd like to start at the end again, because you, you said the journey started as a love story and despite your many disappointments, it remains one. It and does. I thought that was a really interesting thing to kind of end this book with. If you think about it like a memoir, and again, like when I said, I'd like to hear your viewpoint. It's, this is my viewpoint of what happened. Now, a lot of people will be like, I don't think that's what it was like. And I was like, well, that's what it was like for me. And this is my observations of a lot of these big figures through the lens of my journey through them over my career, which has been very varied, actually. And so the evolution of my career is a little bit like the evolution of tech, you know, going from a regular mainstream reporting kind of career to a much more entrepreneurial one, shifting into someone who was sort of pioneering the idea of reported analysis. And I don't mean punditry, I mean actual reporting, and then coming to a conclusion, which is everywhere now. You know, every Substack is doing what All Things D did many years ago, right? The here's what happened at Comcast. Now let us tell you what it means, you know, and I think people find that valuable. Trying new mediums like moving into podcasting. I was quite early to that. Even doing All Things D was very early and you see it iterated everywhere. And so the idea is like, what were these people like when they started? What happened? And then what did we end up with and what did they become? I joke about it, Taylor Swift at Tech Books, but I actually kind of like that idea. It's like, 
I have this boyfriend and he's not all that, or he is all that, or he didn't get me, or look what happened to him. And, you know, it's a story. It really is a story. More than anything else, it's a story of one person's journey through these people. And then there's lots of history. There's a ton of internet history here. And it's easy history. It's not like I don't do it in the techie way. I'm like, this happened and then this led to this and then this led to this. And so if you just are interested in that development, that's fine too. So that was my goal. And make it easy to read. How do you back in, in to the extent that you do back in? You're prolific in everything you do. do. Do you say, okay, this is the goal of a book I want to write, and then you solve to that goal? Or oh, interesting. you sort of sit down and start writing and then say, ah, here's what the goal of the book is going to be. I'm curious. Well, you know, interestingly, I am two years late on this book. I, I was It was due two year, more than two years ago, and I really dragged my feet on it. I didn't want to do it. And John Carp was my original editor at the first AOL book I wrote in 1997, I think it was. And he was a young editor at Crown Books, and I was a young reporter, and he's the one that pushed me to write about AOL. I was going to write about something else. And he had bothered me over the years to do, you know, what's going on, Kara? What's happening here? And I had resisted most of, you didn't see a Twitter book from me. You didn't see a Google book from me. And I was the one covering most of that and breaking much of the news on a lot of those companies, not all of it, but quite a lot of it, or, or people that worked for me. And I just didn't want to write those books, right? Like, what happened to Google? How did they, you know, and all the details. And I resisted and resisted and resisted. And it, even till today, where I get like nine offers to write an AI book, now that's the latest trends or a crypto book or whatever. That was two years ago, whatever. He had came to me and said, you should write this as fiction. And that intrigued me. I was like, oh, I can finally kill one of these people and, uh, and get away with it. And I thought about that. And I thought, no, let me just tell it like fiction. Like, let me tell the nonfiction like fiction. And so I'll, the way to do it is through the journey my career. And he very much leaned into, and I resisted writing about myself a lot. I was like, well, who cares about me? Like they care about Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. But he really thought it was an important way to talk about someone's sort of the scales falling off someone's eyes, I guess, if, you, if that's the journey. Um, All right, hold on a second. Sure. Stop for one second, because you just said something that I find fascinating. Who cares about me is what you mm -hmm. just said. And I, I'm, I know you mean that sincerely. I do. But if you think about it, if you take a step back and, mm -hmm. and look at your life and look at your career, I mean, why wouldn't people care? I mean, think about where if you're interested you are. in think media. If you're interested in development of media, I am an interesting figure. I'm talking about I'm one of those people who doesn't think media is as interesting as media thinks media is. You know what I mean? Like media can go on and on about all the machinations. And I don't think regular people care. It's like nobody cares about how the inside of the insurance industry works either. You know, I mean, they just care about the outcome. And here's where I do think it's interesting. The, the first quote I use, I use a lot of quotes in the book, was from the great Gatsby. I am that character. I am the one hanging around Gatsby. That's who I am. The, the scales fell off his eyes, right? But he still loved what happened. And at the same time, he chronicled destruction, right? That's who I am, I think, if I had to pick a character. No, look, Kara, that's fair. But, you know, in hanging around Gatsby, you know, that person became a character unto 100%. himself. And, you know, you were a character long... When I say character, I mean that, by the way, extraordinarily complimentary. Long before you met any of these people, I mean, you were destined to be a really interesting person. So there are a lot of reporters or journalists that I don't give a shit about anything in their personal lives or what their arc is. But you got to admit, 
Kara. You're a little bit different than that. Yeah, I think I've done it because I've become entrepreneurial. And that's the good thing I took away from doing this beat. I be, I was by nature entrepreneurial and it brought it out in me. I think certain people are more entrepreneurial than others. I had the reporter's quality of being questioning of everything is a good entrepreneurial quality, right? Like, why do we do it that way? Can't we do it this way? They can see around corners. And I don't think they actually see around corners. What they say is, why are we doing it this way? And I did that for media. There's no question when you look around today, everything that was is being done and touted as fresh and new, we did it all things D. You know that, right? You saw it, all the funny things, the weird videos, the handheld cameras. Everyone's like, look, handheld cameras. I'm like, we did that with the um, pure, what was it called? The pure, oh, that video camera. That, And then he's now, he's now ambassador to Singapore, the guy who did it. Pure digital. Pure, remember that? Pure digital handheld cameras. You know, this is pre-iPhone having cameras in them. We did all kinds of personality journalism, really. And then we did the live journalism at Code and before that, All Things D conference. That was groundbreaking. I, there's no question what we were doing from the media point of view was groundbreaking. And then switching into podcasting so early was unusual. It was. It just was. It, it's, and now everybody, every VC with a, you know, any, any dummy can, any dummy can do it. Um, yeah. I, I've, told you in, I've told you in the past that I think Decode was one of my first, it was the first podcast I ever listened to. I think it was back in 2015. It was really uh, very much an inspiration for what Guy and I are doing right now. You know, Carrie, like taking a step back, you know, you, except really, you guys are qualified. You talk about things. You, let me just say, there's a lot of people that just yammer on. I don't particularly want to hear what anybody any VC thinks about the Ukraine unless they're invested there. You guys talk about things you know about, which is, I think, very helpful to listeners. That's always my, that's sort of my North Star of any podcast. That That's the goal. Listen, we think of ourselves as a bit more of the ephemeral guys, largely because the markets are open Monday through Friday. They're active between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. And we have a lot of experience. I don't get everything right, but we try to be very transparent and honest. And, and that is a thread, a common thread throughout the different periods in which you were reporting on tech. And it's really interesting. So let's take a step back. Okay. So when I started in the business in the mid nineties, which is right around the same time you started covering the internet, I was the youngest guy on a trading desk and they looked at me and they said, figure out what AOL, Y-H-O-O, ah. um, what X-C-I-T, figure out what these things do because they are moving around a lot and we see yeah. a lot of opportunity to trade them. And so it's interesting. That's how I found out about you when you started covering that beat because traditional media, at least the business media, didn't really know how to cover stocks like that at the time. So what you were doing was putting faces to some of the names of these really generally young males and what these big visions were. I, I think it helped Help me understand a little bit about well, what was going on. There was nobody there. There really wasn't covering this stuff. There were a few reporters, but you know, it was you know, John Markoff was around, but he was covering computers and software at Microsoft, particularly and Apple. You know, but that was a different era. The computer software hardware era was different than the internet. The internet sh shifted it rather profoundly because the computer mattered, but didn't. Right? That it, you had to have one, obviously, but what mattered more was Wi-Fi networks and bringing it all together. And so it required a different kind of reporter. And and in the book. I talk about what my theory was, was I'm telling you the time, not what's in the watch. Who cares what's in the watch? It doesn't matter anymore. It's like understanding what the implications of a car 
without understanding an engine. You don't need to understand an engine to understand the impact of the car on American society on, in lots of ways. And so that was my goal. Is I There was a lot of techies covering this stuff, very tech-oriented people and chips and things like that. And as important as those things are, and they are absolutely, you know, see NVIDIA, it was not important. What was important about it is what it was going to impact, whether it was sports or communications and or commerce. I cared about the tech in as much as what it would do. And that was different from other reporters. And there it was nobody. There, That's why they all saw me because nobody was paying attention to them. They really weren't, except for the money. Then when the money started to be made, you had all the Wall Street people going, oh, this is a Ponzi scheme. Or And some of it was, by the way. Oh, well, a lot of it w- was in 1.0. It wasn't as much of a Ponzi. It was just built on really shaky foundations. But this was one of the things that, again, I found really interesting. And you know, um, the book talks about that you are a student of history and you apply that knowledge to a lot of the stuff that you're looking at and reporting on and it gives you some sort of framework. But this quote was really interesting to me. I've determined where tech goes depends on who makes the decisions. This book is about those decision makers and your ability to kind of flesh them out in a way. Talk to us a little bit about that because, you know, Web 1.0, some of those folks made it into 2.0, but the, you know, 100 billionaires today are very different than some of the pioneers of, of the 90s. And so talk about those decision makers. I mean, first there were the sort of the people that, that put together the internet itself. Like those people were different. There were tons of companies like that. I talked about Bill Sh- Bill Schrader, I think. But there were a lot of people, the internet service providers that just, you know, that's who hooked you up. And that was a very different thing. That was much like which had come before. But what happened later was the commercialization and the consumerization. And I think that's where a- that's why AOL was so attractive to me. It just happened to be out in Vienna, Virginia, where and I worked at the Washington Post. And most of the stuff the Post covered in tech were consolidators for the government, you know, contractors and things like that, that would put in giant government data systems, whether it was the social security or the IRS. And I, I did not write about that. Like, who cares? Like in that, for me, who cares? And this new thing was happening and it was not called the internet. It was called online services, if you recall at the time. And David Ignatius became the head of the business section at the time. I intuitively understood this was different. And he's like, young person, go out there. You, young, you get it. You know how to use up this and that. And I already had displayed an interest in mobile phones. Um, I was obsessed with our Washington Post one. I was really interested in mobile phones. And I saw them immediately as a game changer, right? You could see that if you looked around, you could make the connections that if everyone had a mobile phone, they wouldn't have a desk phone. They wouldn't be in the office. And I would do things like that and sit there. And there was a teletype machine, you know, that in a newsroom, the old da 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 The news doesn't come through until it's typed on one of those idiotic typewriters, essentially. And we had one at the Post right at the front of the post. And I looked at it and everyone, you know, it's a very delightful, romantic version of a newspaper. The reporters run to it and then pull it off and then look at it. And I was like, what the hell do you need that for if you have the internet? And they're like, that's the newspaper. I was like, you don't need that. You don't need that. Why are you tearing off a piece of paper? And I used to wander around being such an irritating young person. And my whole premise when I, once I went to see AOL was, oh, everyone's going to have access to every piece of information. And it was a series of knowledge. Like I went to Duke and I downloaded a book and the tech person didn't get it, but I did. I was like, oh, then you don't need a book. If you can, if you can put it in a digital format and then that digital format becomes like a book, what do you need a And then I thought, trees, you know, I know it sounds dumb, but I, you know, it iterated through my mind, all the the industries that we affected. And most importantly, the one I worked in. So when I saw Craigslist, I was like, curtains, 
fucking curtains for the Washington Post because I had covered retail before that. And I'd watched as all the retailers in Washington died, Garfinkel's, all these retailers, that you, Heckinger, you don't, you, you remember them. They were, they were actually, I think that was a public stock. And that was one of their businesses. So brand advertising, display advertising was dying in the, in the physical newspaper. Walmart didn't advertise and was highly technical. That's how they figured out how to get people. Craigslist was going to kill classifieds and free news was going to kill the subscription. And I was like, oh my God. And everyone was wandering around taking stuff off the teletype machine. And I was like, Pompeii, that volcano looks kind of scary. Like I think it's going to blow. Well, speaking of having a big effect, unless you're in a complete sociopath, which there are a lot of those people running around, everybody is riddled with self-doubt. I don't care how successful, wealthy, whatever word you want to use, but it's pretty clear that Walt Mossberg had a huge impact on your life. And that's evident in the beginning of the book, the dedication. So speak to the importance of him and the importance of mentorship. I can't say enough about Walt Mossberg. What a fine person, right? He was, and he, you know, he, he he walked me down the aisle at my wedding just for, my dad died and he was, uh, so I'll put that in there. Um, but more than that, here's someone. And one of the things I noticed when I was, I was also a news aide post and I delivered mail. Really successful people for the most part were nice to me. Less successful people were not. It was a real learning experience. The, the real jerks were the less talented people. Not in every case, but often. It was it's kind of interesting. And his generosity of his spirit was critically important. And he mentored so many people and a lot of women, like that was unusual for at the time. And one of the things that I got from him, and I met him through writing the AOL book, because he he was the one that called it. He said, hey, forget CompuServe and Prodigy, which were backed by big backers. Prodigy was Sears and IBM, if you remember. And CompuServe was big. It was more geeky, but it was very big. He picked AOL out. And I was struck by that because I agreed with him. And every time he wrote something, I'm like, that guy knows what he's talking about, right? So I introduced myself to him. We went to lunch. We had French dips at this restaurant that doesn't exist in Washington. I remember the food. And he and I just had this mind meld instantly. And we couldn't understand why newspaper companies and media companies didn't get it. And we talked about that a lot. And I was riveted to these companies. And he was a great reporter. That was the critical thing. Is One thing Walt Mossberg did was he reported and then he said what he thought. And that was powerful, right? And so people really trusted him. The second thing he did was that he made a fortune for the Wall Street Journal because every Thursday, everyone had to turn to that column and then all the advertisers were there. So he was also a moneymaker, right, for the paper and was paid accordingly, by the way, and deservedly. And so to me, he was a new form of influencer, right? He's the original influencer, if you think about them today, but it was a trusted influencer. And he didn't just mouth off. He did the work and then he told you and people liked that. And the best part is he liked some things and he didn't like. He wasn't one of those fanboys slavishly loving everything, nor was he a snarky asshole who was like, tech sucks. Like he didn't say that. Right. And so he helped me and, and got me a job. At, he was also in his own interest. He wanted someone at the Wall Street Journal who understood it and did it well. And he got me the job at the Wall Street Journal. And then later, when I when I got very frustrated with the print publication, he and I used our ideas about conferences and blogs together because we had the same viewpoint. So it was real kismet for me. And he's such a oh, a high quality individual. I can't even, the ethics. It was always me trying to race ahead and Walt being like ethically much, I don't mean non-ethics, but like, you know, I'd be like, Howard Stern should come to co all things D. And he's like, Howard Stern is homophobic and, you know, whatever. I'm like, I don't care, you know, and, and I'm the gay, homophobic and misogynistic at the time. If you remember, he had some 
He had some hair on him, Howard Stern did. And it was a great partnership in that way. We It was a real push-pull, and we made a ton of money, too. Here is one thing that I thought was really interesting, because, again, Guy mentioned this. Your relationship with him, it, it spans through the course of the book here. There's just a couple different anecdotes in the middle, and I thought this was really interesting. So after you were going to go out in the late 90s to cover the internet sector after being in D.C., he said, parachute in with your cleats on. They'll never know what hit them. Be fair, but cover them hard since they are going to run the world. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about that because that's kind of what you did, Kara, over the last That's exactly. Years. I listen to whatever Walt says I do. He's like, you know, he's like, Sarge, Sarge, go in private and yeah, you know, and I was like, yes, Sarge kind of thing. He was right. Uh, you know, he really did see it. I I was aware of where it was going to, but he really understood. You, you had to be a bit of an analyst, you know, a bit of a, a predict, you know, a, a sort of a Nostradamus to see it. Like, but once you saw it, like, you ever know those pictures? There's one on the internet right now of a duck swimming. And if it's on the going the wrong direction, you don't see it. If you look at it right, you're like, oh, I see the face. Oh, I see what's where it's going. I think it in a lot of ways. Walt lived in Washington because he wanted to be away from these people, right? While he fairly covered their stuff. And I thought that was the right decision. But he wanted someone there that would hold them to account because a holding to account was a big thing of Walt's, right? If you do something bad, you pay for it, right? Or you get called out. And so he wanted a reporter there who would not want to be their friends, who would also not be necessarily negative, you know, if something was good, who would just assess the situation and report back honestly. And that's what he wanted. And so he, he again, he got me the job at the Wall Street Journal, got Paul Steiger to hire me. And they needed someone, by the way, who knew these people. And there wasn't anyone who knew them but me, right? Because I had met them writing the book on AOL. And some people did, but it was a very... Um, small, small group of people. I mean, I can't even remember. There was one reporter who was there who I competed with quite a bit at the, in the early days, but not many. And at the journal, it wasn't that welcome among the reporters there, I can, as I related in the book. Carrie, you said in the book, I've spent my career being hard on powerful people. With great power comes great responsibility. Absolutely. Who's lived up to that mantle in your estimation? Like, I'm sure you've met people that, you know what, he or she gets it. Yeah, I think everybody has their flaws. Like, not everyone's been perfect the whole time, but I think some people understand understand the responsibility. Um, and some people, look, here's the reason why the first line of the book was, it was capitalism after all. I still think they're capitalists. It doesn't matter. You know, I wanted to say that because no industry except for this one has to do so much performative bullshit about who they are. We're changing the world. We're community, community, community. This, the whole thing, like we're here to bring world peace, whatever, whatever nonsense they spew, everything they do has to do with making more money or making, growing their businesses. They're relent, they're the bore. They're relentless in their growth obsession. And that's why they're so big, right? It's not because they're good people or anything else. So I'm not expecting goodness from them, but if they have responsibility and they do things, I don't want them to pretend that they didn't cause damage, they did, right? And I don't want them to lean in and say, you know, we gave you Facebook and therefore we get off on all the negative parts. I mean, look, you saw today, there was a, a terrible article in the Washington Post about Instagram and mothers helping their daughters put up all these cheesecake shots and now, and, and all these older men looking at them. That wouldn't have been possible before. I, I don't know what to call it except for child porn, right? That's what it is. And so I wanted them to understand what they were making if they were 
making it, they had to have some level of safety around what they were doing. And so the people who got it, nobody perfectly, including myself, you know, I, I always point to Brian Chesky, although lots of controversy around Airbnb, but you know, he answers the question, like when things happen, he responds, he does something, he changes it. He just, re- after years of me bugging him, they, they just are starting to change the cleaning fees, at least transparency around cleaning. Sounds dumb, but like, stop pretending you're not cheating people. It's just people didn't know it or safety in those places. There's never going to be totally safe because if you're renting your house out to someone on both sides of the equation, there's going to be a problem somewhere. I like how he approaches it. I really enjoyed watching the evolution of Mark Cuban, who I think has become, you know, he, if you remember him back in the day, I don't remember if you do, Dan, but he was quite a piece of work. And at the time he sold broadcast.com to Yahoo. That was just such a like pig in a poke. Come on. Like it was a good idea, but come on for the money. He said, and I think I said that and he got all mad at me. I was like, come on. That was the best like shoplifting in history I've ever seen. Cause he sold the stock right away that he was so prescient about it. And he, he didn't talk to me for a while. And of course I was, come on, come on. Like, I didn't care that he did it. It's that was that was Yahoo's board that did that, not me. But, you know, he's evolved in a really interesting way and sort of understood the responsibility. Not perfect. He screams and yells. I know he's had all kinds of wrangles with startup people. I don't expect perfection and all goodness from these people in any way. What I like is an evolution of their personalities and their responsibilities. I think Apple does a pretty good job at it. And for the most part, not perfect. The stuff in China's, you know, they've definitely made very severe compromises there to do business there. And you know what I think about China. So or not the Chinese people, the Chinese government. And everyone is different. I think the evolution of Bill Gates, let's leave the Epstein stuff out of it for this second, because nothing's been proven with him there. I think he's been an interesting character, you know, going from Darth Vader to doing some really significant stuff in philanthropy and vaccines and climate change. Very interesting evolution of a person. Better keep your mouth shut and let people think you're a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. And so <laughs> I say that because I think the first time you met Zuckerberg, he said to you something like, you know, I heard you thought I'm an asshole. Yeah, I don't know where he got that. And and I think you said to him, no, I I thought you probably were. But did he remove all doubt when you met him? He's not an asshole. He's not. No, he doesn't talk a lot. You know that. He does now. Now he's like blibbity blabbity. Have you noticed that? All of a sudden he's like, let me make a video. I think it comes with evolution. I, I, I do appreciate when he does his like barbecue ones and his MMA. I kind I find that somewhat charming um, or his foil, hydrofoiling, whatever the hell he's doing with that. But no, I don't think he's an asshole at all. I don't, I've never thought that. I thought he was a, he tried to be thoughtful, but the problem I have with him and I wrote a column in the, in the New York Times, my first one, I called it the expensive education of Mark Zuckerberg. And I meant our, at our expense, not his. And I thought a lot of stuff he was doing, he didn't know what he was doing and he did it anyway. And that was an issue for me. And I don't think it was out of malevolence by any stretch. I just think he had a very weak education in terms of what the implications of things he would do. And that famous interview I did with not the sweating one about the about Alex Jones and then the Holocaust deniers was a perfect example. And I, I was like, anti-Semitism on this platform is running rampant. And it, if you keep doing it, it's going to have real world implications. It varies because anti-Semitism has been a plague on our on our world since beginning times. It's not a new thing, but you have amplified it. And he took two years to get them off the platform and still had a problem doing that. 
you know, and here we are. If anyone wonders why it's worse than ever, I can show you some posts on Facebook. Here's one that I just absolutely loved. And, and there's a lot of stuff in this book that, you know, again, I've been listening to your pods. I talk to you personally. I, I read your stuff. There's a lot of stuff in this book that some of your loyal followers have never heard before and never seen before. And that's what's really exciting. And I loved this one. I've heard iterations of this from you, but the prick to productivity ratio, this is a <laughs> unscientific formula unscientific. that you have that you have used throughout your career to kind of take stock of people, to take stock of situations. Speak to us a little bit about this because I think that, you know, all of these folks that you chronicle in the book and, and these relationships that you've had, it, this is kind of a moving target also a little Always. bit. Always. People kind of, change. You're... Like Evan Spiegel, good example. Such a prick when I met him. And I love productive, 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 because I really like that product. I think it's a creative and interesting product. He's, he's made mistakes, but boy, is he... He's really good a product. He just is. It's a really good product. No one can deny that. And everyone else copies it. So that's how you know. But he's not a brick anymore. Maybe sometimes, I guess. But he he really isn't. Some people, you know, are real pricks. Um, and uh, I would say Gates was one of those, kind of a jerk. I think he's a long reputed jerk. Somewhat productive. Yes, yes, definitely. But Sachin Adela, not a prick at all, actually. There's not even a trace of it in him. And it's highly productive at Microsoft, right? What he's done, taking that company, he's sort of the Tim Cook of micro, you know, the same thing. Tim Cook, not a prick, not a very productive in a different way than Steve Jobs was. Steve Jobs could be a bit of a prick, right? You know, and but to, in, by today's standards, not at all. Like his number drops rather significantly. Elon has messed up the whole, the whole, my whole chart now because he's like, so everyone else is like, ah, well, you know, if you're grading on a scale, everyone else drops and he goes up. But he's very productive. He's very productive. Yeah. And I guess Jobs was one of the good examples that you used is that, you know, let's just say you could you could line up that like it was an eight to 10 sort of situation prick to productivity. And, you know, Elon had that sort of set up too a few years ago, but things have changed there a little bit. One thing I thought was really interesting because I was at your last code conference and that panel that you did with Lorraine Powell Jobs and Johnny Ive, and it was about as legendary as actually the panel that you did with Jobs and Gates uh, and you and Walt, you know, back in the day. I, I, I actually loved it. Were I think you it was there for the that? Final... Were you yes, the... I was. It was one of the final interviews of that. No, but, I mean, were you it... there for the Jobs Gates one? That was. Oh no, man! I was. I was that on was a trading desk, else. and 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 you know that that I think was streaming back then. So you guys were early and streaming those sorts of things. And it was one of those things where Wall Street literally stopped, Kara, and and was watching that because it had massive implications. But going back to the, the Lorraine Powell Jobs, you said this that you think that Jobs would have hated the. Elon Musk that exists Those today. Gang, Not, the gang, the gang around him. Yeah, yeah. that sort of thing. And I, and I think that's interesting in a way because I don't really remember Steve Jobs having too many opinions on too many things. So talk to us a little bit about how we remember him now in a sort of romantic sort of fashion sure, and, and what sort of yeah. social warrior he was back in the day because I don't really remember him having too many opinions on too many political things back He then. did have them. He just kept them to himself. You know, one of the things that was interesting if you go, I just got a book of letters of between him and when people wrote him, he often wrote back, right? When people write, wrote him letters at Apple and some of them were like, 
like someone's like, I don't like what you did to whatever dongle he took off. And he's like, I don't really care if you like it. I I did it and I don't care. Don't buy my product. Like, which I, I kind of do that too. Sometimes someone write, I don't like what you did here. I'm like, well, too bad. That's I here's why I did it. Don't listen if you don't like it. I don't know what to tell you. It's my, you know, it's my my carousel. And if you don't like the horse I chose, don't ride it. But he had a lot of opinions and he did actually say, I have gone back and listened to a lot of those interviews, and boy, there are gems in there about podcasting early on, about privacy, about media, about television and streaming. This is pre any of it. So he was thinking really strongly about these things. And he also was very influential. He spent a lot of time talking to Rupert Murdoch. People don't realize that. They spent a lot of time because he wanted to shift him from where Rupert was going with the with the misinformation. And I'm not saying he was like Superman, but he saw the problems of misinformation long before other people did. He saw the problems of social media. He and I had many discussions about social media. He just didn't feel the need to tweet them. The other thing he didn't feel the need to do is tweet his everything he did all day as a person, right? And and Tim Cook is the same way. You know, you don't know what Tim Cook thinks of Ukraine, nor should you. And I bet he knows a lot more than everybody else because, you know, around the world, Tim Cook probably knows more about foreign policy than most CEOs, given the worldwide global footprint of Apple. What I try to separate them from is adults versus toddlers. And, I, and again, that's an insult to toddlers because I have one and he's, well, actually, he's a little bit out of control these days. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I want, give me, you know, I say, I must yell, that kind of stuff. But at least with a toddler, you can do something about it. With adult toddlers, there's nothing to be done because they just can't, won't stop and they have unlimited funds. And so I would separate adults from, from toddlers. And I, and I mean that in the, in the bad toddler behavior kind of thing. And Jobs was not, you would not have known what he thought of Joe Biden. You would not know know what he thought of the woke mind virus. He might have actually thought maybe there needs to be more back and forth. He liked back and forth quite a bit. I doubt he would have dunked on people. He, he would do that in interpersonal relationships, that's for sure. But was he a narcissist? I guess they all are, you know, on some level. But I don't think he needed any constant affirmation and attention from people in order to wake up every morning, people you never met. He didn't need the fan base at all. Or he was a secure person. He liked himself, I think, quite a bit. Care on that front. Okay, Sam Altman, you're getting to know him. You talk a little bit about him. One of the things I think I've known him since he was 19. Actually. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things I think is interesting about this book is like it just came out this week. But you are actually there's stuff in there that is really relevant right up into the moment with some of these players. So one of the things that I really kind of would love to get your take on is that the acceleration in the wealth and power of these folks who are running these companies. And the situation with Sam Altman is really interesting to me because, you know, obviously you talk a little bit about him being ousted and coming back. And, you know, there was a time where becoming a hundred millionaire was like a huge thing and then becoming a billionaire and then a hundred billionaire. One of these people that you mention in this book is likely to be the first trillionaire. And when you think about that, I'm just curious, can you put some context on the power and, and they will be unregulated and you think about the situation with Elon and Starlink and, 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 and in Ukraine and everything like that, there's a whole host of scenarios that we could all just guess about where these people are going to be like, take the last 10 Bond villains, wrap them up into one and they're more powerful. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I worry about unaccountable power, unaccountable power by the richest people in the world, who some of whom have a victim complex, right? Oh, no, they think they're the, you know, one of my favorite things is, you know, when I watch a lot of these tweets and stuff like that, it's so revelatory. They don't even realize how ridiculous they sound, but, and they're giving you so much information about themselves that they don't recognize. A lot of them are like, if you read them in general, it's like, let's get the man. Like the man is out to get you. And I'm like, you're the man. You're the fucking man, man. You're the man. You're the only man. Like you're the richest man. You're the whatever, the most powerful man. And that makes me fascinated. I have always been worried if you're any kind of student in history about unaccountable power with unlimited funds, real power to really affect people, you know, whether it's Ukraine or through communications or anything else. I was worried when broadcast networks were owned by a small group of people. Now, oh no. Like now with AGI, the expenses, that's why Sam Altman's raising, you know, seven trillion. He needs seven trillion dollars. Right. So if only the big people can compete here, that's really problematic for innovation, small companies, governments. These are nation states. If you if you don't realize that now and they're nation states, some of whom have no experience and their their goal is to make money. Oh, no. The government's goal is not to make money. Barack Obama said this. The government's goal is not to make money. It's something else. It's about democracy. So I worry a great deal about democracy in that kind of situation because they have all the levers and none of the responsibility. Carol, I'm going to switch gears here if if I can, because why not? As, As our audience has come to know, be it fast money or anything we do with risk reversal. I'm not the brightest bulb in the fixture, but oh, really? You know, I obviously yeah, knew, the, I knew the. I knew I do. I knew the definition of propaganda when I was in high school and college, but I never really fully understood how dangerous it was. Yet in the 1980s, you were studying this stuff. Yes, I, mean, this I was. Is, was one of which is remarkable if you think about it. Then shows like Homeland come around, and you say, "Holy shit, this could happen!" And then it happens in real life. Are you like, "This is what I spent my life preparing for," and this? is a crazy question for you, and maybe they have already, but the CIA comes knocking on your door one day and says, Kara, we need you. I mean, is that something, could that be a next, I don't know, next chapter in the Kara Swisher book? Well, Guy, maybe I am in the CIA. Now watch, let's start a conspiracy. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) It could be. Who knows? It would be, I, I used to call it, someone was saying that because I did want to work in the military and I couldn't because I was gay. And uh, I would have worked in the CIA, but at the time it was hard when you were gay. It was, it just was, it was, it was just ridiculous. But I might, I might, I might, I don't know now. I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm too old at this point, but I did try to in, enroll in the in the military uh, in the reserves after it was don't ask, don't tell was ended finally, and I was too old. I wanted to be a, and I wasn't able to. It was really one of my my dad was in the military. I think what what started me down the path of understanding why people think what they think was being gay. And there was a really amazing movie and also a book called The Celluloid Closet about gay people and the images in media. It's by Vito Russo. I recommend it. Lily Tomlin narrates the documentary. But once you see the imagery around gay people over a period of time, and then you see the hate towards it, the implications are so clear. It's a bright red line between the two of them, of how people are depicted in media versus how people think of them, and then how it can change, right? The very first image ever broadcast was of two men dancing. People don't realize that. They're just hap- they were just doing it as two men dancing. Be- it's a beautiful image, actually. And it was Edison, I think, who did it. Not to say Edison was gay, just there were two guys there, and that's what they did to show movement. And, and it can shift very quickly, too, with perceptual things. And so I was always really like, I'm not like that. 
why do they think, you know, the lesbian idea was they were sad, pathetic, and trying to attack straight women. Lesbians aren't interested in straight women. They're interested in gay women. Like, it's so stupid. And I'd be like, that's not what I'm like. This is fucking ridiculous. And gay men aren't all flouncy or conniving. Some are, I guess, but straight people do that all the time. Like, it was so stupid. And the whole thing around kids, I'm like, I'm having kids. Why can't I have kids? It just was so manifestly stupid that people would make decisions based on things like this. And so I paid a lot of attention to perception. And then when I went to college, I was very interested. Uh, I don't happen to be Jewish. My wife is Jewish, but I was really interested in what happened in Germany. How did that happen? And not just the manifest hatred that's existed for centuries, but how did they get a whole population to do that? And they did. That's what happened. Because I don't think everyone's terrible. I, you can't assume everyone's just evil and because they aren't. There's a group of evil people that then convince other people to think. And so I studied that and I wrote a paper in, at Columbia about China, about the uses of propaganda. I was going to go live in West Berlin my junior year. The program got scotch to study that very thing, like what was going on in East and West Berlin. And so I just was always really interested in what media could do to influence people. And that's where, and then when I saw the internet, I was like, oh dear, this is like really problematic. It's not a billboard. It's not television. If this much damage could be done by movies, television, billboards, radio, this was all of them squashed together and it could go to individuals. That was really worrisome to me right away. You were early to think about those sorts of things. It's not too different than what we're seeing right now about AI and the potential of generative AI. So talk to me a little bit about how you want to compare the optimists about the internet and how it's going to transform almost every sort of industry and how we interact with each other in the late 90s. And we know that like the air came out of that bubble. And I'm not just talking about from an investment standpoint, but in the early 2000s, but then it just reinflated in a big, big way. And, you know, the convergence of broadband and social and mobile and all that sort of stuff. And now here we are 25 years later and people are saying the same things about generative AI. So let's talk about that a little bit. And, and what does that remind you of? Well, they're warning a little bit. Like you notice with everyone, every time Sam Altman gets up, he's like, all oh, the great things, cancer, cancer, cancer will be solved. And by the way, killer robots. Like he does at least mention the killer robots in the, or whatever he happens to say. Every speech he gives, I, I'm watching, Sam and I are going to do an event in San Francisco. He's very deft in that he doesn't pretend there aren't downfalls. And he's actually reaching out to politicians. For those who don't like him, plausible deniability. For those who do, it's responsible, right? I think it's somewhere in between, right? He needs to say the bad things. And I'm just using him as an example. I really was super offended by Mark Andreessen, who's now like in Washington all the time because he wants crypto to be deregulated, essentially. You know, his techno-optimism, like the, either you're for us or against us. What a stupid argument. Like, what? Like, either for us or against us? Really? Is that, that sounds familiar. Who is like that? Who could, who says things? There's no such thing as for us or against us. I believe in the good part of technology, but I also believe in the dangers of technology. Any intelligent adult would do that. Everyone else that says it's all great or it's all terrible, I don't have any time for them. I don't believe in accelerationists. I don't believe in uh, decelerationists. I believe in smart people go, all right, we got an electric vehicle. For example. You can just take it away from this. This is why it's good. Humans kill more people. Electric vehicles have a better safety record. That said, oops, they can run over people and something doesn't happen. It probably will happen only once and it'll happen hundreds, hundreds of thousands of times with people. What can we do to mitigate that? It's, there's always going to be with any technology 
technology. And I have that Paul Virilio quote, there's a ship, a shipwreck, there's electricity, there's electrocution. You have to be able to do that. And I think any intelligent person with AGI has to understand we need guardrails and regulation on a global basis. And one of the things I do a lot at, you know, I happen to be at a dinner the other night and I look over and it's Tony friggin' Blinken. And I'm like, oh, look, I have a chance. And he asked me, he goes, what about AGI? I go, listen, Tony, you got to get a global thing together. You got to do this. You got to do this. I said, you don't understand it's a global thing. And I just like, literally, I was like, here's my chance. If he's, if anyone's going to do something, whoever I meet, I'm like, we have to have a global, like, just like nuclear cloning. We have done this before. What are the good things? And what are the bad things? I really thought the Biden executive order was quite good on that. I thought it was like, here's what we do to preserve research and innovation. Here's what we do to guard around safety. Here's what could happen. But that's just an executive order. I want Congress to act, but Congress can't. I mean, Mike Johnson, I can't even. No, don't even. God. So, real, oh, God. So, so Georgetown University, I mean, they save certain places for certain people. So Gaston Hall, for those yeah. who they can go to their Google machine and check it out. I mean, that's typically reserved for Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Brad Cooper. Mark Zuckerberg playing, was there. Mark Zucker. You're playing Gaston Hall in a couple of weeks. I, I'm, Do you ever I'm playing just sort there. of Gonna sing pinch and yourself dance. and say, Holy shit, I can't no. believe that I'm no. doing this. I do not because I was very, you know, this is interesting on this book tour. I don't like book tours. I don't. I just, I don't. This is another reason. I'm like, oh, God, book tours. And, you know, I have this, this terrible memory of going to one bookstore, my first book, and like, you know, nobody shows up right? Since I'm good at doing events, I've managed to get a lot of people to talk to me over the years. Why don't I flip the tables and they can ask me questions, right? And so in every venue I got in San Francisco, I'm doing an event with Sam Altman. I'm doing an event with Reed Hoffman. In Seattle, I think I have Alex Stamos asking the guy, because I've given him a hard enough time over the years. In LA, Bob Iger. I can't announce one of them in Boston, but it's a pretty prominent person. It's a very prominent person. In DC, I have Lorraine Powell Jobs. In New York, I have Don Lemon. We have a lot of beefs over Twitter, so it's great. Let's just have them out. They are in New York at the 92nd Street Y. And so it, I thought it was really important to have Steve Case at one of them. And so he's going to, he loves to give me a hard time. And I'm like, here's your chance, finally. What I wanted to do there is it's less about me and my book than let's have a real interesting discussion with the principals. In Austin, it's Mark Cuban, for example. Perfect, right? He's in Austin. And so I'm going to create really interesting discussion events. Uh, and I forget, the last one is Mary Barra is in Detroit, in, in Ann Arbor. With her, we'll talk probably about EVs. With Sam, we'll talk about AI, probably. With Don, it'll be Twitter. With Mark, it'll be healthcare. With Bob, it'll be entertainment. And Lorraine will probably be wealth and philanthropy and the legacy of Steve Jobs. No, I don't pinch myself because I'm making a really good product, right, for the audience and not for me, essentially. And it'll be good. Should be good, right? I it is good. Kara, well, listen, we're going to move some books here. You guys heard move what our offer books. is. So so make sure you, you you do the thing. Leave the review. You get the book. And Kara, we just, again, what we are you, What are you making them do? What are you making well, them do? They're just going to leave a review for the OK Computer Pod. Oh, and they, oh and, and they, nice. And, 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 oh, and I they, like they send it to Amanda, and, and she sends them a book. So the first 100 okay. people who do that. So listen, yeah, I love the book. It's a good book. It's a good book. It's a, it's a great book. And it, it really is something that I think is very instructive also for the period that we're in right now. I think a lot of folks who are trying to figure out this kind of new techno age we're in, I think they're going to learn a lot about your experience in the front row seat that you had reporting on it and reporting on these people and reporting on the technologies and how the, the booms and the busts and everything in between. So Kara, Guy and I really appreciate you coming no back problem. to can the I pod. Say, can I say one more quick thing is one of the things that drives me crazy, one of the things I did on the back of the book was instead of blurbs, I had all the insults of me by some of these tech people and some praise. The reason I did that, and one of them's like, Elon, you're an asshole, Elon Musk, you know, which is perfect. 
perfect. But one of the things that I think has happened too much is there's a need to either hate it or love it, right? And I don't understand that. It's our country has become so not just polarized, but reductive in a way that's stupid. It's just stupid to think one way or the other. And I would assume the mark of a really good investor is to assess both sides, right? And I think that's what the book does well. I have this thing, Kara's mean to tech people. You can't read this and think I'm mean to tech people. You think I can be tough on them and fair, but I hope that's what people get out of it. 100%. That's what we got out of it. We really appreciate it. We hope that our listeners and our viewers get this book, read this book, and we'd like to hear from you, like to hear what you have to say, because we don't think Kara's mean, do we, Guy? Do we? I love Kara Swisher. I have been a fan of Kara <laughs> No, I mean that. Listen, before I even met her, and you know, I admire you a great deal, so I, I have nothing but the highest praise, Kara. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. And it's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. In today's hyper-fast markets, it's never been more important to consider every option to raise capital, drive growth, and create value. Stay one step ahead with Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets. In this season, RBC's experts will examine how corporates and investors are evaluating their strategic plans, reassessing their portfolios, and reallocating capital to help them lead today and define tomorrow. Tune in to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast today. All right, welcome back to the OK Computer podcast. I am joined by my good friend, Jesse Chassie. He is a managing director and the head of technology equity capital markets at RBC Capital. Jesse, welcome to the pod. First time, long time. Good to be here, Dan. Yeah, bud. Well, listen, I do appreciate that support. I know you have been listening to the Risk Virtual Media pods, and you've For also sure. become a fine sponsor of our Funders and Founders series on OK Computers, so we appreciate that. That's gotten kicked off, and it's doing really great. We had Rick Heitzman, the founder and CEO of First Mark Capital, with Zach Rotano, the CEO, founder of Roe. Next week, we have a huge episode with the CEO, founder of Perplexity, that's Arvind Srinivas, and investor and and Bordetsky of NEA Capital. And the whole idea, as you know, of funders and founders, we're putting together founders of companies and board members and investors in those companies and talking about the stories and how they came together and really their journeys together there. So this is a great series. And we really appreciate you guys backing us on that. Listen, we thought we'd have this conversation because stock market's at all-time high. It feels like it's just like, you know, we're back, baby. And um, we really wanted to get a sense. We get this question all the time. When are new issues coming to market? And we thought, who would be better to talk about that than you, Jesse? As the IPO guy, the guy who does IPOs for a living, it's it's been rough. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's been sort of 25 months now. So the longest sort of drought, and we define drought as call it two or more periods with sort of 60 days without a tech IPO, the longest drought by far in history. So well beyond what we saw post the dot-com bubble, well beyond what we saw post the Great Recession. But I think, you know, one of the one of the good things is is it's feeling a little bit better. Now 
Look, last year was a low bar. We got three tech IPOs. This year, you know, we think we'll be a little bit better. We just had two flip public last week with Reddit and another company, Astera Labs. And so it's starting to feel a little bit better. But I will tell you, you know, I spend most of my days and times running around the Valley and New York and other areas talking to, you know, founders and, and the VCs that fund these businesses. And it still feels largely like everyone is focused on the window for 2025. So I don't think there will be a massive wave of issuance this year, but I do expect that there will be more than last year. So again, low bar, more than three for sure. But the, the companies that we see coming public are those that are likely going to come and hit this window for very idiosyncratic reasons. So whether it's a investor that just needs the liquidity, uh, whether it's an AI theme company trying to take advantage of the multiple appreciation, the hype around that theme, um, you know, companies that frankly just, you know, it's time, right? They're mature and their employees need liquidity and there's RSU settlements and tax reasons to get public. And then there's also some some smaller companies that quite frankly are better off coming out now because next year when the window re does reopen, we think there's going to be a wave of issuance from headline marquee names. And so being out in front of that is a good thing. So that's sort of the setup for this year. So better, but but not ideal. Some of the biggest names, some of the most anticipated names, the names that have been on the tips of, of lots of investors' tongues, bankers' tongues for a very long time, have stayed private for longer. Talk to us about that dynamic. And then I definitely want to kind of focus on what you just said, but some of the smaller sort of issues, because you know when we think back to 2020 or the back half of that in 2021, there was a lot of small companies that were coming public through SPACs. Yeah. That seems like that window has kind of closed, but let's go back to the ones that people were really focused on back in 2020 and 21 that they thought might come that are still private today. What are the dynamics that have caused or at least literally given some of those companies, I, I guess, enough runway to stay private for longer? Yeah, I think, look, the, the first thing is, we all know this, but the things got crazy in yep. 2021, right? Bit. If you just think about the sheer amount of capital that was raised, these companies have a lot of cash on the balance sheet, right? They then sort of got fit, right? They spent 2022 taking down burn and getting fit. And so because of the cash on the balance sheet and the ability to take down burn, they don't need the cash, right? So there's no forcing function getting them public. Now, what we have started to see in the past 12 months is, both financial sponsors and VCs needing to return cash to LPs, right? That is going to be a big forcing function. But the thing that is kept, and the thing that's not often talked about, the thing that is kept, I think, most of these companies out of the market, right? Everyone talks about the IPO window being closed. IPO window is not closed. The demand is there. Investors want to buy IPOs. It's the supply that's an issue. And the major, major issue is while the broader economy has been resilient, the consumer's been resilient. We've been in a B2B recession for the past 12 months, right? So the software companies that everyone's most excited about, the, the companies that I spend a lot of my time with, they're having a tough time forecasting their businesses. Again, they spent 22 taking down burn. 23 was a year of enterprise optimization and sort of a softer demand backdrop. So if I show up to a CFO and say, hey, let's go public, you better be bang on with your financials your first six quarters out of the gates. That's a tall ask in this environment. Look, it's starting to feel better. I think Q4, we finally started to feel like we were bottoming around enterprise optimization and Q1 earnings season, or Q4 earnings season rather, has I think confirmed that and solidified that view. And so that's really what points to the window reopening in 2025. So let's talk about that that one aspect of sponsors and VCs looking to return capital, right? So kind of having that exit versus 
what some of the raises in late 2021 and 2022 and the valuation resets that we saw over the course of 2022 and 23. How does that dynamic play out when you think about that, right? So the need for return of capital and exit versus, let's say, peak valuations at the height of the market versus kind of where they are now. Yeah, look, it's it's there's going to be down rounds. One of the biggest issues is we think about hurdles to the reopening of the IPO market. One of the issues that we were contending with for a while was this just this bid ask spread, right? The gap between where public market investors were willing to buy these businesses and where private market investors were willing to sell them. We've done a lot to close that gap. I think some companies have grown into their valuations. Uh, and then I think we've just normalized the idea that the public markets re-rate every day and a down round, there shouldn't be some negative perception associated with it, right? You're seeing that in Reddit. You saw that in some of the IPOs that came out last year. I think it's normalized to some extent. So that being said, look, valuations that were achieved in 2021 were all-time highs relative to any period in history, even in most cases relative to the dot-com boom. So it's not surprising that those valuations aren't going to be achieved again. And, you know, look, one of the things we do with our clients is we just sit down and do some simple math. We look at the AR multiple that you raise capital at in 2021. We look at your expected growth rate over the next five or six years. And we say, okay, so how long will it actually take for you to grow into your evaluation if that is in fact what you're waiting for? And all the time you see pretty quickly, it's going to take seven, eight, nine years. I mean, that's the type of multiples that these companies were raising at in 2021. So it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that there's going to be the same rewriting that we've seen in the public market is going to happen for private companies. We just haven't had enough liquidity to actually see that come to fruition yet. Just mentioned Reddit, and that was announced, I think, last week or so, and it looks like kind of a funky structure. We just mentioned SPACs and how many companies came public via SPAC in 2021 and how few came in 2022 and obviously non-existent in 2023. What about structured direct listings? We're catching a little bit of steam. This yeah. was back in 2020-21 also. Like, what are people kind of leaning into now? What, how do we come out of that period, and what are some of the lessons we've learned of those different structures. Yeah, so there's a couple ways I think about that. The first is this. Th- there was a massive value arb whereby your next dollar being raised was was better off in the public markets than there was in the private markets. And not surprisingly, because of that, we started exploring all sorts of different ways to get public, right? And uh, in a lot of ways, the SPAC was just a reaction of what is the best way to get a company public that, quite frankly, might not be ready to go public via traditional IPO. And the SPAC had a technology that allows us to use financial projections. And so for a lot of the hypergrowth or even pre-revenue companies, that was the best way to get those businesses public. Similarly with direct listings, again, we alluded to the fact that companies had the ability to raise massive amounts of capital. They didn't need cash, so the IPO was no longer a financing event. So the direct listing sort of emerged as a tool to get public. You know, what we're seeing now is rather than sponsors and PEs evaluating different ways to get public, they're just evaluating different opportunities for liquidity. So when I used to show up, I'd say, hey, there's three different ways to get public. Let me walk you through the pro and cons. Now I have to show up and say, hey, there's an IPO is one option, but you also might want to consider a minority recap, take some chips off the table and go public at a later date. You might want to consider a straight sale, right? Like we've sort of tacked it back towards different alternatives as it relates to public and private markets versus just different ways to get companies public. Look, I think longer term, the genie's not going to go back in the bottle. There will be an opportunity to take companies public via SPAC or direct listing, but it's going to be a very small part of the market. Normally, we used to hear about a dual track, right? As you're kind of pursuing an IPO, you would also kind of consider strategic M&A as a possible outcome. You just mentioned a third 
covered right there, like some alternative financing and, and the like. And, and I suspect that that dual track from prior periods now moves to try sort of track or something like that. For sure. We've seen M&A pick up, strategic M&A. We also, there was a headline I, I think I saw earlier that February for corporate bond issuance was one of the highest amounts on record. So if you think about corporates, they have pretty good balance sheets, a lot of these public companies right now, like you know years of zero interest rates, let them kind of get their balance sheets in order. Now we obviously saw a lot of cost cutting in 2022 and 2023. And now you see all of this debt issuance at a time where companies seem inclined to actually do strategic M&A. Also, how does that sort of change the game in a way? Because in past periods, you really had to get to market the, the kind of strategic M&A wasn't sort of a good, they, they were debt fueled, right? Like, like for all intents and purposes. Now these companies have great balance sheets, lots of cash. They can raise debt too. And they did raise a lot of debt when rates were much lower. Yeah, look, we, and, and I'm borrowing a bit from my M&A partners here, but we absolutely expect M&A to pick up and really M&A across the board, whether it's take privates was, you know, last year was a record year for that. We expect that to continue, maybe not at the same pace. And I think the regulatory environment has made some of these mergers and the big mergers in particular tougher. So that's a bit of a headwind, but big, larger mega cap mergers in, in M&A, we, we absolutely expect to continue. And, and then also just broadly portfolio optimization. So you have two companies that frankly in the past cycle could get public independently. Now, maybe you need to put them together to create enough scale to get public. So we absolutely expect that to continue. I think the biggest hurdle up until now has been this same issue around this gap and this bid-ask spread on valuation. As I said, I do think that's starting to close. There's plenty of cash and, and now sort of with interest rates likely going the other direction, the cost of capital environment is likely to get more attractive. And so really, you know, in our view, there's only upside to M&A volumes. So when you talk to some companies that are looking to kind of get on that path to IPO, what are some of the characteristics? What are some of the profiles that really work well for what you see as maybe like a second half 2024 IPO in a market that let's say looks much like it we are in right now, an economy that looks like we are in right now and possibly getting better in 2025 if a lot of those soft landing folks are sort of right. Like what are some of the characteristics that probably set you up well to get on that IPO track for this like next year or so? The common blanket answer that you'll often hear from folks in my seat is scale, growth and profitability, right? Which is great. And it's not surprising that the best companies and the companies that I think have this sort of most de-risk path to the public markets will be those that are scaled, growing and profitable. Although, you know, I have a bit of contrarian view around this. I don't think that's what's necessary. There is a price in the public markets for all sorts of assets. And I personally think for the tech IPO markets to truly heal, we need the return of sort of the mid-cap IPO, whether that's the mid-cap fintech IPO, the mid-cap software IPO. Define that really quickly, just billions yeah. of capital. So I actually would, would look at it on a revenue scale perspective because multiples move around a lot. But sort of if you look at the 2015, 2016 period, you know, it was sort of $100 million of revenue. You had the ability to get public. If you look at sort of just what happened over time, Time, scale grew a lot, right? The average size of, of company in 2021 was more like 400, 500 million in revenue. I actually don't think that was a reflection of what public market investors were looking for. It was more of a function of the private markets maturing, capitalizing these companies as they scaled in the private markets. And that's just what was left when they decided to go public. Look, I think if you are a 200 to $300 million revenue company, particularly in the enterprise software space, if you're growing, if you have line of sight to profitability, and most importantly, you have a strong grasp of your financial model and your projections such that you can execute in the public markets and not 
not miss in your first six quarters out of the gates. That's what I think you need to get public more so than any perfect financial profile. The question just then becomes price. Isn't it odd though? You obviously track it much closer than I do, but I'm usually sitting on the desk at Fast Money on the day of a big tech IPO. And so we're always opining on the first day performance. We're you know opining on the valuation relative to its last private raise. And then I'll be sitting on the desk three months later, whatever that period is when they're announcing their first quarter as a public company. And I got to tell you, I can probably count on one hand over the last five years prior to the drought of how many companies meaningfully beat and are able to raise in that first quarter as a public company. Is that fair? Like, it just seems like I can recall more downside gaps than upside gaps in that first quarter. So what is it that companies are not doing by the time that they get to the public markets, putting themselves in a position to kind of beat and raise? When that occurs, it's really more so a failure on the part of your bankers, right? An IPO is a unique time whereby there's a safe harbor that you can interact with the research analysts. You can help them build their models. They have the opportunity to build pretty extensive models and you've primed them and given yourself enough cushion such that, you know, even in a worst case scenario, you can at least meet or beat expectations. Right. And so there's really no reason that that should ever happen. So, so let me ask you this. Is that, is it more that you're gearing towards a higher valuation at IPO? Yeah. Therefore you're kind of getting misaligned to what you do after the fact. That's kind of the push and pull of that whole. Yeah. Look, the entire IPO market it, it, at the end of the day, if you think about it, the, the decisions you make often revolve around are you optimizing for price on day one at the IPO pricing date or are you optimizing for long-term performance? And if you're optimizing for price on day one, you're going to jack up projections. You're going to try to show a more robust financial profile and then also try to price off of a higher forward revenue estimate or EBITDA estimate or whatever you happen to be valued on. And so that sort of is the point where you're on either side. And, you know, the question is, and what we all often tell our clients is, you know, the IPO is the wedding, but you can't forget about the marriage. These are your new long-term, but I see your smile. Yeah, you like that I one, like don't it. you? I do like that. Yeah. That off a little bit. yeah good. <laughs> These are your new long-term partners into perpetuity. And so you owe it to them and to yourselves to set yourself up for success. And sometimes that doesn't mean that you're optimizing for pricing. You should also not get ripped off by the market. It's on your bankers really to set the stage find out what you're solving for and create an IPO that allows you to solve those problems. Yeah. So right now we're seeing a lot of comparisons in the public markets to the dot-com sort of bubble. And so this kind of fascination with AI and generative AI is specifically. And it's interesting though, when I look back, a lot of those companies in the late nineties were very small in market cap terms. They obviously had revenue. You hear a lot about the old or pre-revenue. There was no companies that were pre-revenue for the most part. I mean, SPACs let you do that a little bit in these last couple cycles or so, but back in the late 90s, you know, there were revenues, there just weren't any profits, right? So now I look at this and I look in the in the private markets and we see stuff, you know, related to generative AI and, and some of the valuations are going to be really hard to grow into in, into the public market. So there's going to be companies that come at big numbers. They're not going to be profitable, right? And so how do you think that shakes out over time? Or do some of these companies, because they are backed by some of the biggest platform companies right now, right, in, in the private market, will there not be this dramatic push to getting to the public markets before they can reach profitability? To some extent, this is why VC exists, right? This is why power law dynamics exists. You have what in front of you is potentially the biggest secular tailwind and revenue opportunity of, of our lifetimes. And so so 
you need investors that are willing to fund that opportunity. And in that type of environment and any sort of hype cycle, there's going to be some that win and some that don't. And the ones that win are probably going to be a lot smaller than the ones that don't. And so that's why VC is set up to fund these themes and these secular tailwinds. I think one of the things that makes this particular theme different than some of what we saw across maybe, you know, enterprise SaaS, for example, is just the CapEx cycles and the amount of capital and the necessity that you need sort of to fund these themes. And so it's not surprising that there's a ton of capital being raised at crazy valuations, but this is different from 2021. 2021, everything was getting funded. I actually think this is sort of a little bit different in that this is why VC exists. And Uber's like kind of a great example. When it finally got to the public markets in 2019, first of all, it was a public down round, right? And then, but for whatever reason, the public investors were not willing to continue to subsidize their growth, right? Given the losses that they had. And that stock, I, I think it was like mid 40s IPO price or something like that, obviously got absolutely destroyed during the pandemic, but it already started selling off fairly aggressively. It was a busted sort of IPO. Here we are now, the company is amazingly profitable. They have different business lines than they had back then that some investors were kind of worried about the continued subsidies of delivery and the like here. And the stock has just been kind of lights out. So talk to me a little bit about that dynamic. And is that something you see that might play out with some of these very richly valued companies that are losing money in AI in the private markets right now? Is that a good kind of path that you might see to public markets for some of these companies in the next year or two? That's a great analogy, right? Like if you think about what happened in Uber, there was a lot of complaints when it came public and concerns from public market investors about the long-term rationality of the unit economics in that business. There was also, frankly, a concern that all the value appreciation had been captured in the private markets and there wasn't much left for public market investors. But the truth is, is look, this was a market where winner was going to take most. We're overfunding that particular business so that it could win and capture those customers and that sort of flywheel of the two-sided marketplace was rational and made sense. And then once they came public, they were forced to sort of have some discipline around economics, whether it was pure profitability or from a unit economics perspective. And now that they've turned that part of the business on after sort of capturing, again, the winner take most part of the market, it's worked, right? So I, th I think that is a good, interesting analogy around VC funds, these ideas, takes them to fruition. But then when the public market steps in and when these companies get large enough where they're you know forced to go public, I think discipline that's required, particularly from an earnings perspective of, of existing in the public markets is what helps you get to that next level. All right, before we get out of here, Jesse, let's say this, okay? You talked to kind of really two buckets of folks in, you know, in your seat, right? One would be that founder, that management company that's kind of looking for a path to IPO. And obviously they're being advised by their VC investors. What would you say to them about the 2024 environment? You and I covered a lot of ground here, but like, obviously you're often speaking to these folks. They're asking for your advice. They're asking for your expertise. You know, you talked about these multiple tracks, right? To exit that sort of thing. What would you say about the environment right now? Number one, the market is healing. But number two, from, from a macro perspective, I think there's, you know, quite frankly, just as much uncertainty as there's been in quite some time. And so you really need and owe it to yourself to understand what your burn dynamics are going to look like over the next 24 months, how that ties into the capital you have on your balance sheet and what the three or four options are as it relates to how you're going to capitalize yourself for the next two years. So don't rely on the IPO window being there. But if you have a great grasp of your business and you're ready to go now, in that same vein, 
the market's open, right? Investors are absolutely looking for new ideas and looking to put money to work. And so the IPO window is not closed, ladies and gentlemen. There is a supply issue, not really a demand issue. Yeah. And then again, just for that investor who's looking for new ideas, looking to deploy capital, what was one thing that you would say as we start to kind of test that market and we see some deals? And I, I have to assume that there's going to be a lot more tech deals than there were last year in 2024. What would you say are like some of the key things to focus on for them right now as these deals come to market? Yeah. Yeah, look, the professional investors are much better at sort of determining valuable investments than I am. That's not really what I do, but I can tell you what they are focused on. I think we've gone really to a back to basics approach to tech investing. And there's this rubric over time that has really always worked for building sort of enduring long-term successful tech companies. And it's number one, a massive TAM. There's a lot more scrutiny on TAM than there was in the previous cycle. You just throw some big number on a page and move on. That is not the case anymore. A company that has built a differentiated technology and purpose-built that technology to attack that TAM. Companies that have differentiated unit economics and most importantly, economies of scale. Businesses that have real durable moats. And then finally, which is a bit of an overused word, but it's real, platform opportunities. So you have multiple shots on goal so that when you're using a discount rate to discount those future cash flows, you can lower that rate because there's a platform opportunity in this business and they're going to have multiple opportunities. That's really how I would succinctly sum up what's a best-in-class tech investment? Well, back to basics. And it's been a, a pretty difficult, I, I think, four years for lots of folks in any way you touch the capital markets. And I think a back-to-basics approach makes a lot of sense. All right, Jesse Chassie, you are a managing director, head of technology, equity capital markets at RBC Capital. We appreciate your support in the Funders and Founders series. And I appreciate you being here, dropping all this knowledge on what we are likely to see in the new issue market in 2024. Thanks I so had much. lots of fun. We should, uh, we should continue to do these. Let's do it again. Thanks, man. Cheers. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.